You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I'm your host, Miles Lassiter, founder and investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired, to be a founder, or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. On today's episode, I speak with Alex Meridian, who is founder and CEO of Resolve, a company which combines caring human experts with powerful technology to provide people with affordable and transparent debt relief solutions. Prior to founding Resolve, Alex was an entrepreneur in residence at Expa and the founder of ReadyForce, a company that helps people find jobs and get work. He was also a principal at EOS Partners, a growth equity investment fund in New York and an associate at First Atlantic Capital and Fremont Partners. Alex began his career as an analyst in the mergers and acquisitions group at Merrill Lynch. A frequent public speaker and panelist on financial technology for good, Alex has spoken at Financial Health Network's annual Emerge Forum, Hope Global Forum, and CB Insights Future of FinTech, among others. He's a graduate of Georgetown University and Columbia Business School and lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with his wife and children. I got excited about, about the story when I met Alex that I made an investment. Now he has progressed quite a bit, and I'm excited to share the story with you. Just before having this conversation, he closed another $5 million round. He tells a story of his intense pivot. He had 25 employees and was going in one direction, realized he had to change directions given the market circumstances, and he brought a team down to five people and then back up to eight. They've got eight open positions now and expecting to continue to grow. It's a wonderful story of a turnaround in the middle of a startup, which I think you'll enjoy. We also discuss direct and honest conversations, how this funding environment is actually working for entrepreneurs, measuring progress along a mission, when do you persevere or pivot, and much more. So stay tuned. Alex, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Miles, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to telling you more about our story. What got you into debt and people in financial crisis? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great way to kick the conversation off, Miles. I, I certainly you know, never thought my career would lead me down the path of a distressed consumer, people struggling with debt. I, I actually kind of stumbled into the area a couple of years ago when I met some bankruptcy attorneys out of the Phoenix area. And, and really, I, I was looking for an opportunity to merge my uh, software entrepreneurial experience with my background in finance and was planning on building something that was going to be a automated financial planning app for the, for the average American. But really what I figured out in the early days is that finance is a little bit like diet and exercise. And it's not until you really have a, a difficult problem or a timely problem that many people are ready to start to address their financial situation. So I started to learn a little bit more about the bankruptcy process, more about things like credit repair and debt validation, and realized that this space is kind of littered with predatory companies. Uh, so you've got tons and tons of people who have problems, lots of kind of slimy companies that are out there taking advantage of these folks who are, who are in distress. And as an entrepreneur, it's, it's great to have a business that you know you can build a big successful company while transforming people's lives. And it's, 
also nice to know that you've got kind of a set of bad guys out there that you can go after and try to put out put out a business. And so it, it, this for me, this was the, the, the a great next step in my entrepreneurial career. Uh, and it had all those great elements. There's plenty of people who have a background like yours, Wall Street, private equity, who don't become concerned with the problems of average Americans. Why did you? One of the things as an entrepreneur that's really important is, is passion. You work many hours. There are lots of ups and downs in the entrepreneurial experience. You, you question the idea that you're working on. And you know, it, it, at least for me, I have to feel like I'm making a difference. And everything that I've done in my entrepreneurial career has been around helping the average person. You know, there's lots of great cool apps out there for people who want to trade Bitcoin and, you know, grow their, grow their retirement savings. But it, it really just makes it much easier in the morning to wake up and, you know, work a 12 or 14 hour day when you know that you're really helping somebody with the underlying real problems of their, of their lives. And there's nothing that gets me more excited on a day-to-day -day basis or my team's, my team excited than when we get a message from one of our members saying, you know, we've changed their lives. They were lost without us. And, and that really feels amazing. So making a real difference in people's lives. So share with our listeners how you make that difference. What is the company's service? Yeah, so what, what Resolve is, and, and maybe I'll, I'll touch on kind of the broader vision and then a little bit on what we do today. So we've really built this uh, online platform to be a, a debt management platform for people who are struggling with debt. Now, that's a very broad vision. When you start to look at folks who are struggling with debt, the list of specific problems that they have can be quite long from financial problems to frankly even even personal problems. What we launched with earlier this year in, in January is a platform that provides four primary services to our members. The, the first thing that we do is we will get offers from their creditors. And, and sometimes those offers are, are to enroll them into low interest rate hardship programs. If the account is late enough, we can get them offers to settle their debts for, for less than they owe. And as you might imagine, lower interest rates and lower balances can be quite transformational for, for folks who are struggling with debt. The, the second thing that we do is we have a, a debt expert who our members can text, email, and chat with. And this is, a, this is not a salesperson who's trying to sell them anything. This is basically somebody who they can ask any and all questions to about their financial lives, about their debt and get unbiased advice. And, and we get questions like, you know, what do I do when I get this phone call uh, from a collection agency to, you know, more broadly, like, I I'm really struggling, what do I do, period, right? Just the, the high level direction. We've also added a series of what I would consider more planning tools. And so we, we build a budget for consumers, we send them alerts about bank fees, overdrafts, really anything to help them start to bring their financial life to top of mind. And then we also pull a credit report on a monthly basis and help them track their credit scores. And more importantly, the progress that they're making to work their way out of debt. So the, the broad vision here is really a, an all-encompassing suite of services to help these members. And going into next year, 
uh, we'll continue to add to that suite of services to start to cross more and more of those needs off of the, the, the financial problems list. And the product has evolved a lot over the years, right? We actually started the business in, in 2019 with, with a very similar vision. And going through COVID last year, we really needed to rethink how we were, we were helping our, our, our members. We used to provide a more kind of white glove handholding service where you could get on the phone and spend a half an hour you know, talking to a debt expert. And what we realized during that evolution, and especially when the world kind of got turned upside down last year, we needed to really focus on keeping costs low, making it individual on-demand services so that people could access them 24-7. And, and in the end, the, the value here was not necessarily a warm voice on the other end of the phone, but more you know, how do you settle debts for, you know, a couple bucks? How do you enroll in these programs for, for very low cost? And so we focused on being the, the online uh, low cost provider instead of, you know, trying to be everything to everybody. And with that change, you had to change a lot of things about the company in order to uh, shift the strategy, right? Yeah, I think that's probably an understatement, Miles. I think, you know, looking back on, on, on last year, you know, we, we had a team of 25 people at the beginning of last year, we were, you know, things were going great, you know, and, and the, the entrepreneurial journey, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of ups and downs. And so we, we thought we were on the, the, the up roller coaster in January, February, March of, of last year, when COVID hit, it really exposed some, some challenges in our underlying business model and operating model. I had to make some really hard decisions during, you know, the April to October time period. We downsized from 25 down to five. We, you know, completely went back to the, the whiteboard on the product and the business model did lots and lots of testings, lots of conversations with our, our members to figure out what they wanted and, and needed. And then came out of the other side, a, a stronger team, a stronger product, but it certainly was not an easy year for for me or for the team. You know, I had to let some really great people go, and you know, and it's you know one of the hardest decisions as an entrepreneur is when do you when have you exhausted the things that you you know and, and when, when have you realized that the idea that you're working on is not right and kind of going back to going back to basics and back to step one and starting things over again. And how was that emotionally? It was tough. There, I mean, there's no other way to to describe it. You know, both for me and and for the team. You know, we had to send some really hard emails to our members, turning some services off that at least you know a good a good group of members were appreciating. I had to you know let some really amazing people go, and and I think you know when you when you're building a business like this, you have to really separate the the, the short-term emotional aspect of it from making sure you are working your way towards the longer, the longer vision. And, you know, I've, I've told um, existing investors this, I've, you know, we've talked about it with the team, certainly last year, I had a lot of, there were, you know, certainly many days where I was asking myself, you know, why am I doing this? Should we keep doing this? And as we had talked about before, you know, in the end, the, the mission is what kept us 
coming back to it. You know, the, the messages that we would get from our members asking for help, pleading for help in, in some cases, really gave me the, the confidence and conviction that we, we just needed to keep going. Whatever, what, at all costs, we, we needed to keep moving forward. I think, you know, one of the challenges in startup land is the, the venture founder environment has gotten very kind of feast and famine type oriented where, you know, lots of money are thrown at ideas. If it doesn't work out right away, you know, founders shut companies down, investors give up quickly. And uh, I think the reality is some of the most interesting businesses are, are created after trying multiple times at solving, uh, solving problems. Because quite often the the right answer is not the first one. You got to take a couple of swings at it to, to, to build the, the big disruptive company. That's interesting to me. You're suggesting that despite rhetoric, the standard model is one where founders are not persevering. Yeah, I, I think that's certainly the case. I mean, when, when we were going through this turnaround of this business, I certainly got the question many, many times from friends who are venture capitalists, other entrepreneurs where, you know, the, the feedback I got was, you know, this is not going to be worth your time, Alex, right? You're what you could go start another business. You could go in the next, you know, you could shut this down start this company over again and have more equity and um, have it be a more personally lucrative experience. But, you know, one other thing that's always been important to me is, certainly the mission as we've talked about, but, you know, a bunch of investors have put faith in me to, to generate returns, build a big business. And I, I just feel, you know, equally to my, my personal financial gain is the responsibility to, to those those investors. And I think that's missing in, missing in today's world. But, but frankly, I think it's a, a challenge on both sides. I think investors will often give up too early on ideas when they don't, you know, work within the first couple of months and entrepreneurs equally are, are giving up a little bit too, uh, too easy. I think it's just a part of the, the ecosystem that's been created. So any advice for a founder who is in that situation of making a decision, do they make their team smaller so that their runway is longer and they can keep iterating and trying to figure out where the real solution is? How do you decide whether it's time to do that or rather it really is time to shut down? Yeah. You know, in, in my, in my 10 year entrepreneurial career, I've had to do this one other time. And this was, you know, now seven or eight years ago. I think the short answer to the question is if you are thinking that you might need to downsize your team, the, the answer is you, you do. Right? That's one of those situations that as soon as that thought kind of creeps into your mind, that's probably the, the sign that it is time to start making some, some changes because something's not working. Now, I think that it's a very different question in terms of downsizing the team versus shutting things down. The, the, the shutting down question is a lot more around, is that problem that you thought you were solving gone? If, if the problem, if it wasn't really a problem, then, then maybe you should shut down. If the problem's a lot smaller than you thought, then maybe you should shut down. But if, if, that, if it's still a big problem and, and lots and lots of people are having this problem, you, you know, you, in the end, the, 
the only thing that's that needs to change is the solution that you're you're working on and so the startup ecosystem is great at, at really focusing on problems you know the first seed deck that everybody always do does is you know show the one or two slides of, of what problem you're trying to solve and 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 that's the hard piece the figuring out those big meaty problems to go after if you if you've got the right one you keep cranking at it if you realize that nobody really has that issue it's time to time to move on to the next idea so as long as there's still the problem you set out to solve out there in the world it's worth continuing to iterate on what the solution is that, that's correct although I'll, let me add one one additional factor is like you as the entrepreneur need to still feel that passion right if you if you no longer are excited to solve that problem even if it's a big problem if you're not excited to solve it anymore personally it's it's probably time to to move on as well you know this this job is it's so much fun i love doing what i do i would not want to do anything else with my life and i'm i'm lucky that i have the a supportive family around me to 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 let me pursue you know my entrepreneurial dreams but it would not work without passion right you have to be excited about what you're doing because there are you know a in in over the course of that journey that you're going to be on many many days that will challenge you to uh to quit right it'll, it'll be lots of opportunities to say i'm not going to do this anymore but you need to have that that underlying passion and to to persevere gotcha and in order to do that, you have to convince investors to come along for that journey. Any advice for other entrepreneurs on how to do that? Yeah, you know, this is really a, this is really an interesting market in terms of venture raising, you know, rent raising capital over the last 10 years or so. I think certainly the, the, the venture community has, has gotten more focused on size of problem, vision of problem. And so there's definitely an alignment between entrepreneurs and, and investors to go to go do that. What, what's been really interesting, and, I, and I'm sure you're seeing this in your, your investing career as well, is the, the money, there's just lots and lots of money out there. And so you know, you're seeing companies that are pre-product, pre-revenue raising $20 million. And then on the other side of it, you're, you know, you're seeing companies who have revenue have a product, but maybe are you know struggling to to, to raise around. So it's 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 quite a strange uh, and and frothy uh, fundraising environment. The you know I think the key piece of advice looking you know I've now gone through I don't know eight different fundraising rounds over the co the the course of my entrepreneurial career. You know my my number one piece of advice, uh, and again this is after doing it a bunch of times is is building a relationship with a, a core set of investors. You know, find, you know, find the partner, not the firm, but find the partner who has an interest in the space that you're working in. Talk to them frequently, talk to them often, tell them how you're thinking about solving the problem and, and build a relationship. Because in the end, as an entrepreneur, what you, what you, you, you're gonna go raise money before you have everything figured out. And the more that the person on the other side, the more that the investor understands your thought process, how you want to solve problems, how you think about the long run, the easier it is for them to, to move quickly and the easier it is for them to write, you know, a check that's based on vision and, and faith instead of 
you know, metrics. And so th those relationships are, are really key. And I, you know, I wish I could say that I always went down that path myself. I've had times where I've had to raise capital, you know, quickly and have been reaching out to a new set of investors. And there are times when I've, you know, the fundraise has been, you know, two conversations and $5 million later, because I had invested that early time to build those relationships. So when we needed that capital, it was basically waiting for us. Don't just listen, get engaged. I host a giving circle to support startup tech nonprofits. Why do they need support and why is it hard? Well, think about all of the challenges of a nonprofit startup where only 2% ever make it to more than 10 million in annual budget and all of the challenges of a tech company in building a team, understanding users, figuring out what to build and architecting the right product. So why does it matter? Well, think of the established large tech nonprofits that impact your life. Mozilla makes Firefox and other important internet infrastructure. Wikipedia collects and distributes knowledge. Code for America makes our government work better. Code.org and Khan Academy teaches us all. In healthcare, Medic Mobile powers living goods and other local community healthcare workers. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle to find out more. You've had both for-profit and non-profit investors in the company. Do you ever find any differences or tensions there? Certainly. Yeah, it's a, and it's a great, great question, especially for, for our type of business. One of the things that I've tried really hard, and this is both at the board level and the investor level, is to make sure that I'm bringing in different voices and different perspectives. So we have some you know, what you would consider more hardcore fintech or financial investors that are very numbers oriented. We have mission driven investors who are, you know, certainly not throwing money away. I mean, they're looking for financial returns, but, you know, those returns need to be generated by doing the, the, the right thing, you know, and then, you know, oftentimes you, you can bring in investors who have a more, more marketing mindset or an operational mindset. And, and certainly, having different voices around the table makes a huge difference. One of our earlier investors uh, is a fund called Acumen Fund. And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about what happened last year and needing kind of having a difficult year and needing to turn around. You know, a, a lot of the confidence that, that we got, I got, and we got as an organization came from the support of, of, of Acumen Fund. You know, they, they're mission-driven, and to have an investor who is as passionate about the underlying problem that you are trying to solve, it makes a huge difference. And by the way, it's not only, you know, kind words and confidence, but with, you know, financial support. And so we, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the support that that Acumen had provided us. It's not to say that our other investors weren't supportive. They, they, they were, but those are very different conversations when you're looking at an Excel spreadsheet trying to say, Hey, does the math pencil out compared to saying, you know, do we think in our case, there are going to be more people who are struggling with debt post pandemic? And if that's the case, then the answer is we just got to keep going forward. We're going to figure out that, that problem. So it's a huge, it's a huge advantage to have different voices and different perspectives around the table. And I think you could even expand that by the way, to diversity on the board, diversity on the team. 
And that I think is, is a key thing for, for high quality decision-making. What has been your experience with building diversity on the team? It's hard. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, I, I think when I, when I look at our team on our board, you know, we, we are not doing a great job from, you know, a, a basic diversity perspective, you know, I'm a middle-aged white man. Uh, and certainly when I look at the rest of the team, there's a lot of people who, who have similar backgrounds and, and look a lot like me. Um, and that's not to say that we haven't tried and we will continue to try, you know, we're actually, you know, we're a team of eight right now, and we'll be a team of 16 in the, in the next few months and adding diversity to the, the executive team to the board is one of our absolute top, uh, top priorities. You know, it, at, at, at the same time, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're trying to move fast and, you know, we'll go out and post a job and, you know, 98% of the candidates will be, you know, white men. Uh, and so, you know, this is a, certainly a, a different business opportunity, but I think everybody wants to have diversity, but it is not an easy thing to do when you, when you have a, a short time period to, you know, to, to add members to the team. So it has to be a, a primary focus. I feel lucky now we're, we're at the stage where we're experiencing enough success as an organization that it's not for us, it's not speed uh, over everything else. And so we have the luxury of spending a little bit more time talking to more candidates and trying to find the, the right person who's going to bring the, the right perspective, you know, for the long run. As you've gone through these ups and downs with the team, what has stayed constant about your culture or your approach to team building? You know, that's a, that's a great question, Miles. We actually had a, a company offsite earlier this week and we, we talked, you know, as this is, there's a lot of new faces sitting around the table and, you know, we started with, you know, what are the important things to, to me? What are the important things to the team? And there were really two, two aspects that I, uh, I highlighted from my personal perspective. Now, in the end, you know, I'm a, a, I'm a large driver in the culture of the organization, but the first five, 10, 15 people are equally responsible for, for driving that vision, culture, and, and environment. And, you know, of all of the things that I could have talked about during that session, I highlighted really two things. So the first is we, we always have to do what's right for our members. And if I, if I can kind of give any member of my team a decision-making framework, it starts with, if you were that person who was struggling with debt, what would you want us to do? That could be issuing a refund. That could be, you know, responding to a message at 11 o'clock at night, you know, whatever that underlying question is uh, or need is, you know, what would you, what would you do for that person if they were your your husband or wife, your, your grandparent, and, and, and all of our decision-making starts, starts with that. And then the, the, the second aspect that I, that I hired for, that I highlighted for our team was really about how do we work together as an organization? And, you know, for me, life is way too short to deal with politics. It's way too short to wonder what somebody else is thinking, especially in this kind of crazy world of work from home and not sitting in, in an office with folks. And so I really try to create an environment of open and direct communication, asking for lots of feedback, offering lots of feedback, 
and and really trying to encourage people that it's that the best answers are going to come out of debate, right? We should feel com- we all have the same vision and goals here, and so let's challenge each other, let's push each other, let's not be afraid to say what we think or feel, and and that's where the really good decisions are going to come out, and and so those are for you know really the, the two key things that I that I keyed on during those sessions. Now we'll you know as the team grows, there'll be more and more added to that list, but I think that's where success starts. When you say you're doubling the team in the next year, what kind of positions are you hiring for? Our core focus right now are on product managers. So we'll hire two to three product managers in the next few months. We'll hire two to three uh, engineers as well. And then we're looking to hire a head of growth. And so, you know, when you, when you go for, you know, from a team of, you know, seven or eight, we are all wearing many, many hats today. You know, in addition to being the CEO, I'm the head of marketing. I'm, you know, quite often I'm the, the QA guy as, as well. And so we, those really, those core positions are the ones that will, you know, allow me to focus on, on being the CEO, allowing Randy, who's our CTO, to focus on kind of more strategic, higher level technical decisions. And, you know, probably even more important than that is allow us to continue to, to, to build new products and features for our members to help you know, transform their lives. And part of the reason you're able to do that hiring is because you've recently closed a round. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, the, the, the timing of this call was great. So we, we actually closed a round yesterday. We raised a little over $5 million and the kind of the broad set of investors was both, you know, a tremendous amount of support from existing investors and, and some new investors came in to help kind of take this business to, to the, the next chapter of, of growth. And so, as I mentioned, last year was a tough year. We, we turned this thing around and, you know, now we're off to, off to the races again. And that fundraising round of $5 million, that was some from existing investors, but also a critical new investor coming into the mix and, and buying in to your vision. As you were fundraising, how much do you emphasize the business opportunity versus the mission orientation of the company? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So we, we, we actually have three large new investors come in into the mix. And I, you know, one of the, the, the investors and I, and I'm, I'm not going to share the names yet until we do a, a more formal announcement, but I, I can certainly give some background on each of them. One of the firms is very marketing and brand oriented. And for them, really, the vision here is we, we want to build the, the dominant ethical brand in the debt space. There's a lot of great technology companies that, have, that are going after investing or banking, and we want to be the fintech company that owns the, the debt space. So that, uh, this firm's highly focused on, on brand building. We brought in another mission-driven investor as well to kind of complement the, the team over at, at Acumen and, and to your earlier point. As we continue to grow, we're, we want to continue to add those mission-driven and nonprofit investors to, to the cap table. And then interestingly enough, we, we found another great firm who kind of walked the line between you know, traditional financial investor, but also mission-driven investor. And so as you look at these three firms, they all are bringing something different to the table. And, and frankly, each one of them connected to a different piece of the the vision and, and brings a certain set of you know skills and assets to that will help us uh, successfully achieve our goals. 
So do you have to communicate with those different kinds of investors in different ways? You know, I'm I'm 46 and having been you know in you know an entrepreneur for 10 years, I, I, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I'm still figuring that out, Miles. You know, different different investors connect with different pieces of the story, and I think that will always be the case. And for me personally, you know, I, I think if you if you talk to any of our existing investors over the course of my my career. I'm a bit of an over communicator, right? I'm, I'm honest about how I'm feeling about the business. I, I send a lot of emails where everybody is included on the emails and, and my overall philosophy. And this is similar to the way that we run the team, which is to open and direct communication. If I'm struggling, my investors will know that I'm struggling. Now, I think a lot of investors out there I'm a bit of an acquired taste, right? You, you know, they often are more excited by the, the very salesy, everything's always great uh, entrepreneurs. And I made the comment, like, life is too short, right? I, like, life is too short for me to have to worry about kind of the, the fluff around the story that I'm, that I'm telling. I want you to know exactly how things are going. Because as an investor, the, the way that you can be m- the most helpful is if you, are as in deep in my brain and and are worried about the things that I'm worried about, and that, that gives you the opportunity to 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 step in and be uh, help us solve those problems instead of just being a resource for uh, for capital. And so, you know, I start from a very broad communication approach. I do you know a decent number of one-on-one conversations with investors, and and I do you know I think when you think about the individual conversations that you have. I, I, it is important to to know what is important to those those investors that you're talking about. So I I certainly do adjust from from time to time. Although it's not like I'm it's there's there's no omission associated with it. But I do know that when I talk to my impact investors, that we're going to talk more about impact and less about growth. I'm chuckling over here at the quote. I'm a bit of an acquired taste. <laughs> well, you know, in a, in a world where you know, I, I know, Miles, you started a couple companies, right? So you probably had this experience where you you talk to your entrepreneurial friends and everybody's killing it except for you, right? Everybody's business is growing at 50% month over month. Everybody's, you know, investors are beating their doors down and, and quite often they can feel like you're the only person who thinks that this is a hard job. And, and so, you know, my approach has always been, I'm just going to be honest. So I've, you know, sent some investor emails where, you know, the first, the first line of that email is I'm not feeling great. Right. And, and, you know, quite, quite often that solicits some strange responses from, from investors. Uh, Oh, pray tell. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But again, you know, if for, for, for me, it is always uh, as soon as the, the folks who are supporting understand that they are going to get the the honest, clear, authentic, often raw view of what is going on. I, I have heard that it is it's quite refreshing, right? So once we've kind of gotten over that 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 initial communication style, they know that when think when I'm saying things are great, things are great. Um, actually, if I'm saying they're great, they're pro- we're probably killing it, right? I'm always under underselling even uh, a little bit. And so, but in a, again, in a world where 
everybody's startups are great and thing you know that you you never you just don't always hear that that the 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 difficult aspect of the of startup land from from entrepreneurs so maybe it's an age thing i don't know i in fact got a investor communication from one company a couple months in a row where the growth looked so consistent and everything was so perfect that i started to wonder is this even real and so i think your point of sharing the good and the bad does help build trust. Yeah, I, I, we've touched on, on this in kind of communication, honest and authentic communication in a, in a couple different threads on, on the call today. So, you know, we talked about it from a, you know, from a team perspective point of view, we talked about it from when you had, when you had asked about, you know, how do you go about raising capital? You know, it starts with building an open and honest relationship with an investor, even before you're looking to raise raise money, and then it certainly translates into the those ongoing relationships with those who have who have you know financially backed you. And, and, and frankly, you know, now that I'm saying this out loud, Miles, it 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 translates even to the way that we build product at at Resolve. You know, we we want our members to. We want and need our members to trust us, and one of the ways that you do that is by, you know, not not adding too much fluff, you know, not being too salesy. We we use the term internally a lot, um, authentic, right? We're looking for people who are communicating in a, an authentic way, and and that translates into the way that we uh, we build our product. It means when we do something wrong, we we own that problem. We say our we're sorry when we make a mistake, and we when we make it right for you know for the folks who have have been impacted. And I, I wish I could tell you that we've, you know, every time we push uh, a product update or push code that it's it's perfect. It's not. You know, we you know we're moving very quickly, and sometimes we'll make mistakes, and and when we do, we we own up to them, and and I think it's it's threaded through the entire culture of the company. Now, you know, you've probably heard, whether you've read, read the books or seen the news stories, you know, honesty is not always a part of, of startup culture. And, but, you know, again, I, I, I'm, I'm older, I, you know, I'm an older entrepreneur. I've, I've been around a couple of times before. And so just being honest and direct is the only way that I know how to do it. Well, thank you for sharing that perspective. I'm curious how you think about measuring your progress towards your mission beyond financial metrics? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. You know, we, during this most fe- recent fundraise, we, we highlighted a metric during our, during our investor presentations that was a bit of an unusual metric. And, and we call it the thank you metric. And I'll describe a little bit about what it is and then why, why we ended up going down this path. So, the thank you metric is quite simply the number of times that our members have said thank you to us. And at this point, you know, December 16th, we're, we're north of uh, 35,000 thank yous this year alone. And wait, what? Yeah, it's, it's quite crazy, right? It's, uh, and these are members who are emailing us saying thank you, texting us saying thank you in the chat message saying, thank you. And it's, you know, everything from, Hey, thanks for that update to thanks for this, what you've provided 
it's really a whole, it's a whole host of, of spectrums. Now, the, the reason that we, we picked this specific metric was, you know, things like NPS score or, you know, sending out a survey that says, you know, rate us on a one to 10, or would you refer, refer your friends for me, didn't quite highlight the, the emotional aspect of, of what we are doing for, for our members. And, you know, investors will push for an NPS score. And I just have never been able to, you know, when, when you, when you ask people to fill out an NPS score, you get a whole host of the angry people will respond and the really happy people will respond, but there's not that are allowed in the middle. Um, and so I wanted to find something that really signified the emotional aspect that we were addressing for, for our members. And so the only way we could decide to do it was just, you know, if, if we're doing a good job, we get a lot of thank yous. If we're doing a bad job, we, uh, we don't get a lot of thank yous. And, and, and that is what, you know, has really resonated with, resonated with us. Now it was quite an unusual conversation and slide to show in, in an investor deck, but, you know, to your, your previous point, the, when you found somebody who is tied to the mission, um, who understands what you're trying to accomplish, they, they spend the time to understand why that is, uh, that is a metric that we're, we're focused on. Now, there are other, other things that we hope to track in the long run, still quite early days. You know, we'll start looking at you know, how much money have we saved people over time? What percent of the, the members have you know, started in financial distress, but are you know, now in financial health? Those, you know, many of those metrics will, you know, will need years and years of data to, to, to prove that what we built is, is truly transforming people's lives beyond just the emotional feeling that they're getting. Well, thanks for sharing that. Time is drawing to an end here. I'm curious if you have any advice for aspiring founders that you haven't already shared. I do. And I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a proud father of, of two teenagers in high school and, and it's, you know, it's one of those things that you, you know, especially living on the West Coast and living the, the entrepreneurial life is wondering about the, you know, the traditional path, whether it's banking, consulting, accounting, or, or going into the entrepreneurial world. I think my first and most important piece of advice is you got to follow, follow your dreams, right? If you, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you know, don't wait 20 years into your career in order to, to pursue that goal. We talked a lot about passion today. If you have that passion and drive, you will make it happen. And whether you, you know, raise money from you know a brand name venture firm or from or from some you know friends and family who who, who trust you, just do it. Right. This is this is. There's no time. This is the best time to be an entrepreneur. There's lots and lots of money out there. Everyone's looking for disruption. So just bite the bullet and and take the leap. Inspiring words there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How can people learn more about the company or follow up with you online? Sure. You can feel, feel free to send me an email at alex at helloresolve.com uh, or um, visit our website at www.helloresolve.com. Uh, look, looking forward to hearing any questions or comments from, from your listeners, Miles. And I, I, I do want to take a minute. I, I think it is, it's spectacular that you have highlighted in this world of startups, the, you know, the companies that are trying to do real, real social good. So I, I really appreciate the effort that you put into this to, to help shine a light on, on, on folks like, like me and the end resolve. 
Great to have you. Thank you. Thanks, Miles. Have a great day. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Reviews really do help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and you can follow me on LinkedIn. If you are inspired today and want to join our giving circle, please do so on our website, startupsforgood.com. Thank you.